Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, college football fans across the nation and around the world. This is Tim May with yet another Tim May podcast. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Awesome award. I think this is my 101st, 102nd, and you've been my co-pilot on about uh, three-quarters to nine-fifths of them. Is nine-fifths a correct term? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's a fraction, and I don't think that you properly celebrated number 100 last week. Well, that's me. I'm, you know, very low-key. You know the, how that goes, and uh, – by the way, uh, some guy commented uh, on last week's that uh, he thought you were over me. Are you over me, Awesome Ward? Never. Okay, good. I'm one, I'm glad to hear that. But, uh, you know, it's funny how one little comment, you know, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. Hey, I think he's over you. That's the one that sticks with you. You know what I mean? But that's the way it is, right? That's how you become better is cool. you look at the criticisms and you up your game. Well, you know, and that's 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 my idea today is we're going we're going we're going to up the game for several Ohio State uh, products using that term loosely because I don't I've never liked that term either but how else do you uh how else do you ex-players ex-Ohio State players are moving on the NFL and uh and then past that I've got a great conversation again with Luke Fedlam sports attorney here based here in Columbus uh who's very very involved in the name image and likeness situation uh, giving us an update on that but also it, words of advice for these guys who are moving on from college football to the NFL and the big the big pitfalls they need to avoid while they're also trying to make teams. And, uh, you know, this is a, this is going to be a, 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 an enlightening moment for many of these guys, right? Yeah. And uh, I think the same thing is true for this conversation you're going to have with the name image and likeness that, that there are about to be a bunch more players moving forward who are uh, better prepared for this moment and yeah. uh, learning all the other time demands in exchange for money that might pop up for you. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and I think these guys have also now had, you know, three months of this, whether it's autograph signings and dealing with agents and going on shows and signing their first endorsement deals and uh, tons of, uh, you know, rookie cards for the sports collecting market and all that stuff. I mean, that, that, that's that been going on, but, you know, you are, you are about to leave some of this friendlier confines when you do draft prep. People are taking that care of that for you, about to go out and be on your own, and, and that's, that's never easy for anybody the first time. No, it's definitely. I remember the first time I moved out of moved out of my house, moved into a trailer with a couple of buddies of mine down in uh, Lufkin, Texas. That sounds pretty. That sounds like a joke that I moved into a trailer, <laughs> but I did. But uh, you know, when you're paying your own bills, and uh, uh, and the thing about it is, like, like like Luke and I talk about, you know, and Josh Myers talked about this way back in January. You're now the boss of a company, a small company, because you have what you have to get past is the fact that you're not you're no longer like taking orders necessarily from a lot of people. You're giving orders to a lot of people and you need to treat them that way. You need to treat them as employees, as bosses, you know, as, from a boss's standpoint and not as buddy buddies, you know, and uh, some of the some of the real things. And Luke and I talk about it is, you know, surround yourself with the right people, not necessarily your best buddies, you know, because they don't always necessarily have your best interest in mind, even though it may seem that way. You know, your posse, so to speak. But, uh, you know, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, we're also going to talk about the NFL these guys going in the draft, you know, just we're going to give some brief ideas of where we think guys are going and uh, how interesting a time this is in all kinds of ways when it's come to the 20, uh, 2021 draft. I know you're keen for that, right? Let's do it. All right. But first, let's have my conversation with Luke Fedlam. As promised, ladies and gentlemen, an encore performance by Luke Fedlam. Luke Fedlam, a partner at Porter Wright. Uh, what's the rest of the name of that law firm? I forget, uh, Luke. Porter Wright, Morris, and Arthur. 
it used to be something else a long time ago, man. I mean, you know, but uh, yeah. you know, I think you guys go pretty much by Porter Wright. But, uh, man, I appreciate you joining me again uh, to kind of like just iron out a few things and explain some things that are developing uh, in the college uh, in the college athletic world from the standpoint of perhaps a little more profit sharing or something like that down the road. We'll see where that goes. Profit sharing is the wrong term there. But uh, real quick, I wanted to get you on to the here pre-draft to uh, – what kind of like, I don't know, climate change are these guys like at Ohio State are going to get drafted like a Justin Fields, a Pete Werner, uh, Wyatt Davis, guys like that? What kind of climate change are they in for that they they haven't they haven't experienced yet? Yeah, I, you know, for really for any student athlete that's made this transition now where they're about to get drafted this week, um, it's going to be a significant change. They're going through, um, you know, from from this this place where. We know that college sports is a business. I know we're going to talk more about that later, but it's still college sports. And, you know, you, you, you get a lot of guidance as to where to be, when to be there, what to do, and, and all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, they're transitioning into professional sports where it is very much a business. And what you start to realize, one of the things I think as we work with, you know, a lot of players at the professional level, one of the kind of challenging things to them is to realize this sport that they love, how much of a business it actually is. And you realize that with a few things when you see teammates or friends get cut, you know, friends that you might have that don't end up making a roster. And now they're trying to figure out what are they going to do next in life? That's when things start to become very real. So um, big changes coming, you know, definitely exciting time for them, you know, getting drafted. It'll be excited to see where everybody goes. Um, but then it's time to get to work. What is if you could explain it in a nutshell, because you've been around, you know, you, uh, you know, like one of your, one of your, uh, uh, I don't know if you want to call it your uh, philosophies, whereas my passion is providing uh, professional athletes with the trusted business advice and legal counsel they deserve. And what is the main pitfall they have to watch out for, uh, along with being, uh, along with being professional, being on their own and stuff? What is that one thing that's going to come out of the woodwork that they weren't expecting, do you think? The way in which they have to realize that their life has become a business, right? Their professional life is this business. So they've got the business of football. Yes, got it, right? So I got to show up. I got to be a professional. I got to do all that work. But now I have all of these people, you know, most of the guys that have gotten drafted have probably never had like a job before, right? They've never, you know, worked somewhere because they've been training and playing and all this kind of stuff. And so now all of a sudden they're hiring people to work for them. So they're hiring an agent who works for them, a financial person who works for them, a lawyer or whatever. And so now they have to realize as much as I love football, I also have to prepare myself for managing this business around me because guess what? To your point, so many people come out of the woodwork, so many opportunities. Hey, I want you to get you involved in this deal or this restaurant or this, you know, investment opportunity. And so they have to have a strong business and a strong team around them to help protect them from all that. Yeah, it's, it's akin to somebody winning the lottery. And all of a sudden you've got all these solicitors from all kinds of directions coming after you. You know, Josh Myers, you know, outgoing Ohio State Center, you know, he talked about that on my podcast back in January uh, about now you got to realize you know, you are, in essence, for one of another term, a business. You're an entity and uh, you have all these other people supporting you. But you must keep in mind they're working for you, not vice versa. And a lot of the times the unscrupulous ones step up and almost make it think like they're doing you a favor, you know, and, and in yeah. some respects they are. But uh, the bottom line is you are the boss. And it's pretty tough to go from being told what to do to being a boss, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And when you think about it, I mean, a lot of them are what, 21, 22 yeah. years old. And they're and the people that they're hiring to work for them have been doing this for decades or right, doing it for years and years. And so there's just this mental kind of hurdle to get over to realize, even though they've been doing it for this long, they still work for me. So one of the things that we always talk about is how to how to hold people accountable, right? How do you empower those people that you trust around you so that you can hold that team of people who work for you accountable? It's critical. Yeah. It's almost like you hire somebody to watch the other guys and then you need somebody to watch that guy, you know? And, <laughs> uh, and it really is, you know, it's interesting. Hey, let me, you know, this is kind of like sideways question, but who in your mind is uh, somebody you can point to or a couple of guys you can point to maybe from the Ohio State realm uh, or, or just in general, who have done it right as professional athletes from the standpoint of getting that army or that uh, group together. I mean, you know, that people could maybe uh, copy or emulate. You know, I think it's, um, it, it's a, it's an interesting question. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to avoid naming names. I think yeah. that what you should, should look at are um, when you see people who uh, from, you know, call it from Ohio state or from wherever else, um, typically when you see them doing good work in the community, um, that their business, uh, whatever their business might be, the industry that they're in, the things that they're doing, whether they're still currently playing professionally or if they're retired from playing professionally, um, you can tell. And the people who have been the most successful and found ways to elongate their career beyond just their playing days and beyond, typically it's because they end up having a strong team around them that has kept them away from some of the challenges and the pitfalls that come while they're playing. Yeah. Listen, most athletes will experience some some stumbles and some trips and falls, right? Because you're you're new, it's new money to you, it's a new experience, you're trying to figure it all out. But is, you want to be able to minimize those, right? If you can minimize those little you know hiccups along the way, you can set yourself up for long term success down the road. Who needs advice more, a Justin Fields who's probably going to get drafted in the top half of the first round, and you know have a huge signing bonus? Uh, of course, that you know, as you well know, that goes down incrementally. You know, uh, yeah. or the guy that gets drafted in like the sixth round, very small signing bonus. Uh, who who needs that advice more? I know they both need it, but you know, you would you would think sometimes when you're going to the NFL, everybody thinks every shoe fits the same foot, and it's not as that is not correct at all. Uh, or every uh, the same shoe fits everybody's foot. That's not correct at all. And uh, uh, who really needs that guidance more? Do you think? They both need it and they just need it differently. Right. I mean, so I'm a lawyer. That's a safe answer. Right. Yeah. But, but it's, the, it's the truth, because <laughs> when you when you think about it, you've got you've got Justin Fields or whomever. Right. That's going to go top, you know, top pick significant signing bonus money. The challenge is going to be how to help create the structure um, so that they are prepared and protected for long term success. At the same time, when you have someone that's like maybe even an undrafted rookie that makes a roster or, you know, somebody that gets drafted in one of the later rounds, they're going to have less assets to work with, but need to make it work for them in order to be successful. Because not all football players are created equally financially. And a lot of people will look at that and say, oh, if you're in the NFL, you're making millions. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And so you have to be able to think about how do I manage my budget? How do I manage, you know, kind of just the day to day and not get caught up in this lifestyle bubble that can get created in, in professional sports. It's just a matter of different needs that they have. You like to give advice though. And this is what I'm going to, you know, what would be that one thing you would tell all of these guys don't do that. This is, this is the one thing that almost everybody who gets drafted in, in pro sports, this is that impulse purchase, whatever you want to call it, that they almost all either do or come close to doing. What would be that 
what would be that one you would tell them, don't do this, do this? So one of the things that I would always say is don't make any major financial decisions your rookie year. Right. Because let's think about this real quick. If you're, you know, college player. Right. So they went through, let's say you're, you know, you're an Ohio State team that went through and and made it into the, the, the football playoffs and everything. So you're extended into January. Right. And so now all of a sudden you as soon as you're done with the season, you're training for the combine, you're training for pro day, you're doing interviews, you're getting ready, you're getting drafted. You get drafted now this week. Right. After the draft, you go out to whatever city drafted you. Now you're doing their rookie transition program with that team. You're trying to figure out where you're going to live, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then you're starting, you know, your your offseason workouts and then training camp. And then you go right into the season. So you have so much coming at you so incredibly fast that you want to try to slow things down from a financial perspective as much as possible. So that way, during your first offseason, at the end of this upcoming NFL season, now you can kind of take stock of, how much money am I even spending on a monthly basis, right? What, what is it? If, I'm, if I get drafted to San Francisco, right, and end up playing in San Francisco, that's much different than if I end up getting, getting you know, playing in, in Dallas or playing in, you know, Miami, let's say. Jacksonville. So, Jacksonville. Jacksonville, yeah. right. Yeah. It's a very different from a financial perspective and, and all that. So, and just a cost of living and everything. So, I always try to encourage players, get to understand kind of what your regular spend is so that you can kind of put together that budget, work with your financial team before you make any big financial decisions. And do you also, uh, I don't know, do you, do you, do you, would you advise them rent, don't own at least those first couple of years? Because, you know, in the NFL, any pro sport, you could be living in, like you said, in Jacksonville one minute and Green Bay the next, you know, I mean, on the whims of uh, whatever. I mean, I, what, what, what's the advice there? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I, I, a no, lot no. of times what I try to do is stay, let the financial people have those kind of conversations. Right. Yeah. Um, what I'm looking at from a legal perspective is if you're going to lease, can we make sure that we can get you out of that lease if you get traded, cut, you know, or, yeah. or released um, as quickly as possible? And then if you're going to buy, then we want to figure out how can we make sure that you can buy in a way that helps maintain your anonymity so that all of a sudden fans in whatever market you're in don't have public information access to your, your address and then show up, you know, at your house one day, which happens to these guys. So. Yeah, I was going to say, everybody knows where Deshaun Watson lives now, for example. <laughs> right, right. Uh, for all the wrong reasons, uh, but I digress. Hey, well, let's jump into this. Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about that uh, uh, before I move into the next aspect. Uh, you know, uh, is when you run into guys, how, how much of these guys, how, much, how many of these guys have even thought about, I call it the afterlife, the after sports life, uh, because it can come and it can come four months from now, even for guys who just got drafted, you know, or are yeah. going to be drafted. They, their career could be over from the standpoint of they got cut, you know, and uh, they may pursue it long term. But uh, how much, how many of these guys are prepared, have prepared for that at all, or at least people around them prepared them for that? I mean, I don't, I don't expect you to have a true percentage, but is yeah. that, do, do you, do you bring counsel in that regard too? So I'll talk about it with clients from the very beginning, from day one. You have to, as a professional athlete, especially in football, you have to start having those conversations around what's going to happen next, like from day one. Yeah. And I get it, right? Most of the time, they're, like I just mentioned, their whole timeline from when they finish their college season to the start of the NFL season, rookie season, it's, it's incredibly busy. So you don't get a lot of time in there, but you have little moments where you drop little nuggets about, Hey, you know, let's just let's just talk about those things that what you're going to focus on for this next offseason. Because I try to tell players your first offseason 
you want to take a step back for a second, but start thinking about what is it that you want to do? Because while you're playing is when people want to engage with you. So if you, if you know, if you're playing and pick a city, you can usually, if you're on an active roster in the NFL, you can pick up the phone and talk to any CEO or any, you know, business leader in that community that you wanted to. Um, once you're off the roster and you're no longer playing, it's harder to get those calls answered. So if you want to shadow somebody, if you want to learn about certain areas while you're playing is the time to do it. And during the off season, you should. Yeah. Pick a city. I think pick a city is in New Mexico Isn't it pick a city, New Mexico, but I digress, (laughs) you know, uh, I had you on, uh, like seven months ago, we were talking about the name image and likeness, uh, glacier. That's well, I, I thought it was a bus. It was coming around the corner, but it's turned into sort of a glacier. (laughs) <laughs> coming around the corner it's moving it's moving slowly steadily but it's not quite here yet and i'm talking about name image and likeness ladies and gentlemen uh that's going to give uh college athletes uh upper level college athletes uh the the right to cash in on their name image or likeness and now, i don't know look where, where does it stand where does that situation stand right now from what because i know you keep up with it uh uh i know you keep up with it quite clearly I do. I do. So um, uh, it may be moving like a glacier to some people, to others, it's moving incredibly fast. And regardless, it is big like a glacier. So what you what you have right now is the convergence of a few different stakeholder groups that are all playing a role in what name, image and likeness and where name, image and likeness is. And just to make it perfectly clear, when we talk name, image and likeness, this is really just about um, college student athletes being able to be compensated, um, you know, for their athletic performance as, as a, as an athlete, you know, based on their name, image, and likeness, their branding, et cetera. Yeah. So, so what we see is, uh, a few different stakeholder groups. First, you've got the Supreme court. So the Supreme court just heard oral arguments at the end of March in a case called NCAA versus Alston. It has nothing to do directly with name, image, and likeness, but it's the first time the NCAA has been in front of the Supreme Court since like 84 in the uh, um, Board of Regents case in front of the Supreme Court. And this is the focus of this case is about antitrust rules. And it will definitely um, kind of cast a sign for how future legislation can look and who's responsible for it when it comes to um, the compensation or athletes being able to be compensated. The other you know, stakeholder group is the federal government. Federal government has basically kind of talked about, and there have been a couple bills that have been proposed uh, around federal name, image, and likeness legislation. Yeah. The NCAA was supposed to, and obviously the, the other stakeholder group, the NCAA was supposed to vote on name, image, and likeness rules back in January. That's when everybody kind of thought that bus was coming around the corner. And they held off because the Department of Justice said, hey, hold up, we think there might be some antitrust issues here. So don't take this vote yet. Don't move forward. And and so the NCAA has really just kind of taken a step back. Um, And the federal government, there are some different folks in Congress who have presented some bills. But most people think that a federal uh, legislation on name, image and likeness is unlikely to actually see a vote until at the earliest late this summer, sometime in this fall. So the last stakeholder group, which is really driving the train right now, is I'm, I'm switching metaphors. I went from the glacier to the train. I like it. Um, but, but driving the train right now are state legislatures and states. And so states are moving forward. And so we know that we've got Florida um, that's already, that's been kind of the main name, if you will, known about what their name image like this is going to look like. It goes into effect July 1st. 
You've got other states as well that are going to go into effect. Um, Arizona's going into effect late July uh, of this summer. Um, Alabama just signed their law. I mean, we've got multiple states. I think we've got around eight or nine states now uh, that will be going into effect either this year or um, early in next year. That's that's huge. And, and it's huge because if if the federal government doesn't come out with their legislation, federal legislation right away, right away, meaning by July 1st, then you've got states that are going to go into effect. So if you go to college in Florida, if you're at Miami, if you're at, you know, University of Florida and you're a student athlete, you're going to start making money off of your name, image and likeness. And so obviously that then leads to the competitive landscape and, and trying to figure all that out. So I just said a lot. I'm going to take a break um, just to catch my breath. But that's kind of where things stand with name, image and likeness. What kind of chaos are, are we in for if, in fact, that happens, that uh, several states it kicks in and, uh, you know, you can, you know, you know, you can you can say that uh, schools are not going or coaching staffs are not going to, not going to be allowed to uh, say, hey, you know what? If you come to Florida, you can do A, B, C and D. You can make money on A, B, C and D, but it's going to be understood. It's, the message is going to get through. What kind of chaos is that going to cause, you think? on the collegiate front. I mean, the, the major college collegiate front. I mean, Ohio doesn't have the same rule that Florida does, you know, you know, of course you can only, you can only have so many people on your football and basketball teams, you know, and other sports. But I mean, what, what do you see out there? If in fact, this isn't, doesn't become a federal mandate. I think what you're going to see is chaos, not just on the sports front, you're going to see chaos in the state legislative front. Because you have got to believe, and I know that there's already legislation being drafted here in Ohio that will work its way through committee and get onto the floor for a vote. Because, I mean, that's one thing that can transcend the partisan politics that we see, right? Which is we want to make sure that our state, whatever that state is, has all the opportunities to recruit, you know, student athletes at the highest levels like any other state, especially rival states, if you will. So from that perspective, we're going to see states pushing through um, uh, very quickly so that so that they can get things into play. But but to your to your point, it's going to be chaos regardless of what name, image and likeness looks like. It's going to be chaos because it's never been done before. It's the most significant change to college sports, I would say, since they started offering sports scholarships back in the 50s. And I think, you know, what we're going to see is not just name, image and likeness, but then this other counterbalance of the other changes that we see coming to college sports. So we know transfer portal rule changes, right? So now how does that play into to a role of, well, man, maybe now I can go and transfer to this other state where there's opportunities for me to make some of this money um, off of my name, image, and likeness and not have to sit out for a year. So all of that is going to create a situation where I think we're going to see um, uh, just a wild ride in the on the business side um, and the rights side of college sports here this fall and for, for the next couple of years. Because even when, even if federal legislation came into play, the, the application of that legislation, the enforcement of that legislation and, and the understanding of who's, who's doing the reporting, you know, student athletes reporting back to the school, schools reporting to potentially this third party administrator that the NCAA creates, that hasn't been created yet. So, there's, it's going to take some time for it all to work itself out. But I think what we will see to get to the point of your question is that we'll see states moving very quickly to be able to say, we got to make sure the student athletes getting recruited to whatever school are going to have the opportunities to, to get compensated for their name, image, and likeness. You know, uh, Gene Smith, I know, met with the football, Ohio State football team on one of their real life Wednesdays a few weeks ago, maybe so a month or so ago. And he kind of, I think he outlined some of the things that are coming. I don't know if you're 
you know, I wasn't privy to the conversation, but I understand what it was about and stuff. But just, I don't know. I mean, like you just pointed out, the NCAA is yet to name a, you know, or is yet to set up a, uh, an administrative office to even handle this. Uh, I don't Are they almost wishing it's not going to happen? I mean, how would you do? I know Gene Smith understands it's going to happen and stuff, but uh, you know, have you been, I guess, sort of like stunned by how they haven't responded? I'm talking about gotten on board, so to speak, before the bus runs them over, or excuse me, the train runs them over. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned for a couple of reasons. When, as soon as California back in 2019 passed their bill 206, we yeah. knew that name, image, and likeness was definitely coming, right? There was no way that we would have one state in the United States that would allow their student athletes to get compensated and no other states. And it was not going to be a thing anywhere else. That was the time where I started really trying to dive into this space and preach to schools and to organizations of the importance of preparing student athletes for what's to come. Because in this whole conversation, we've talked about the impact on schools, on recruiting, the NCAA not doing this or doing that. And yet we have to remember that these are student athletes who are going to be targets for getting taken advantage of. And all the stuff that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation around how do these Athletes that are about to get drafted this week in the NFL draft, how do they prepare and protect themselves from getting taken advantage of? Now this is going to come downstream to 18, 19, and 20-year-olds who yeah. are going to have this opportunity to work with agents or work with advisors to help them on a the marketing side. So I've been stunned at, at that. But at the same time, it's that's tempered, I think, a little bit by the fact that We've had a lot of stuff going on this past year, year and a half, right? When you think about COVID, obviously do just dominated the conversation. How do we even have sports in a safe way? Do we have sports? We have stop sports for a while. Um, thinking about racial and social justice and the realities of some of the challenges that, 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 that were addressed by the sports world and the college sports world as well. So there's been a lot going on. But nevertheless, it is surprising how little preparatory progress has been made um, for name, image, and likeness to come. And part of that to the NCAA's defense, which I don't always get into that defense, but I will say when you get told to hold off because of potential antitrust violations, clearly they're having to, to fight the fight that they did at the Supreme Court level. Um, and so there's going to be some changes coming and we're going to have to see, see what they look like. But I will say from the very beginning, student athletes, we cannot forget that they're going to need this protection and they're going to need the education as well. Yeah. And what, what people have to come to grips with is, you know, even on the student athlete side of it and their parents and et cetera, it can't just be the wild, wild west. You have to I mean, if you have an organization, you have to have some kind of rules, you know, but you don't want them to be, you know, anywhere close to what they have been, you know, from a from a rule standpoint. But there has to be some kind of sheriff in town. Right. I mean, to uh, yes. this is OK. This is not OK. Uh, I'm giving you a ticket here. I'm locking you up over here. There, there, there does have to be some type of administration, right? There has to be. And what's interesting and what makes this, go, what makes this so mind-blowing as to what potentially could happen is that right now, the way it looks like is you're going to have the states being responsible for those rules. And the state's legislation, they're all different. They all have different aspects. They're all based on this core concept of student-athletes being compensated or being able to be compensated, 
but each state has its own nuances, yeah. right? Some states yeah. talking about, well, if you don't participate, you know, then maybe you can um, have some type of annuity or some, some benefit later. Others saying, hey, you can't get involved with um, sponsors that the school is already involved with or competitive with. And, and so each state is going to have its own. So now you have compliance departments that are already overtaxed, over, over, overstressed um, already, that are going to have to figure out within their own individual state, what are the requirements of their student athletes? What do they have to report? How do they help make sure that their student athletes stay protected? Um, and that the institution, which is what obviously compliance cares most about, is that the institution is in line with whatever rules or laws they're going to have to follow. Yeah, but at least those uh, at least those folks that uh, won't, won't have to be chasing whether or not Johnny got a free meal at Roosters, you know, or something. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. Those days, at least, I hope are, will be over. Because uh, holy moly, hey! But you know, you yeah. go ahead, go ahead. We're gonna say. Well, I was gonna say, I, as much as you hope those days are over. It's going to be interesting, right? Because now what if it's a booster? What if oh, it's a yeah. booster that says, yeah. hey, I'm going to, you know, because from from all intents and purposes, for the most part, boosters are, are going to be a, uh, like a, a reflection of the school and not able to do deals with student athletes directly. And so there's still going to be rules. And that's what yeah. we have to see is how they're all going to play together because student athletes still aren't going to be able to receive impermissible benefits. Yeah. Somebody can't just say, hey, well, I'm going to pay for all this stuff for you just because you're an athlete. Well, what service is the athlete providing back to them from marketing, social media, influencing, whatever it is? And that's where that fair market value analysis is going to come into play in terms of is the student athlete doing a deal that's in line with what they're being compensated for? If the student athlete is doing nothing and just receiving, that's still going to be impermissible benefit that's still going to get tracked down. Can't have like a feel good clause in there, you know, just, you know, <laughs> just boosting him, helping him makes me feel good. You know? <laughs> Hey, real I don't quick, think that's you know, work. but you know, uh, you know, jumping real quick, uh, you're co-executive uh, director of this new uh, organization called the College Basketball Parents Association, which was founded what this past in this yeah. within this past year, correct? That's right. Yep, uh, right before the beginning of the college basketball season. In a nutshell, what is the aim there? I mean, and this is the reason I'm asking you that. Well, I'll get into the reason I'm asking you that in a minute. But what is what is the primary goal or aim for you for this organization? Yeah. Thanks for asking about it. Um, I just, I really care a lot about the CBPA college basketball parents association. If you want to learn more for your listeners, the cbpa.org um, is where you can see it's free to join. Um, and really the focus is how do we create a community of parents, right? So that parents have the voice, the bigger, the community, the louder, the voice um, in terms of what happens from a recruiting perspective from high school into college and, and getting you know, told a lot of different things when you're going through a recruiting process. Um, what about once you're actually there um, and your student athlete, son or daughter at whatever level, D1, D2, D3, beyond, um, and they're playing on their team. You know, oftentimes parents have talked about how they're no longer engaged by either the coaching staff or by administrators, right? They get all this focus and attention during recruiting. And then all that focus and attention turns to their sons or daughters, which makes sense. But at the same time, parents still should have some understanding and say in, 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 in the broader perspective of what's going on with their, with their student athletes. Think about name, image, and likeness that we've just spent time talking about. Yeah. I mean, you, as parents, you, you need to understand that so that when your son or daughter turns and says, Hey mom, Hey dad, I, I'm, I think I want to sign with this marketing agent and he's going to promise me a, a $10,000 advance. Like, should I just go ahead and sign it? Like 
parents need to understand these things as well. And so we created this to create this community, um, a sense of community among parents and to create this stakeholder group. So just like the NCAA is made up of all of its member institutions, you've got the NABC or the WBCA, right? For National Association of Basketball Coaches or the Women's Association of Basketball Coaches, right? They've got their coaches association. So parents as well should be able to come together and uh, be able to advocate for their sons and daughters who play on the court. Look, Real quick, though, you know, devil's advocate here. Uh, college sports is not a career, you know. A college Participating in college athletics is not a career. It can be anywhere from one to, you know, let's face it, six years like Justin Hilliard, you know. But <laughs> it's no finite career and stuff. Well, what do you – why is this necessary, do you think, for uh, for these organizations to exist? Is it literally to as a watchdog or, or you know, an oversight committee kind of idea that to make sure abuse isn't going on in some form or fashion? I mean, how would you describe that to people? Because as much as name, image, and likeness is a big deal, for example, it's only going to be worth it to you as a as like a high state football player if you're a star three or four years, you know, and then you move on. Uh, just – what is the main reason? Uh, what, what is the main reason you need this? You need it for exactly what you just said, Tim. And you talked about it. You said, hey, this is not for a career. And because it's not for a career, you we see that the student athletes turn over all the time. Yeah. So that, that for, therefore, parents turn over all the time. And when parents turn over all the time, there isn't as much of a need for accountability to the parents as to what's being done by the institution, by the association gotcha. for the student, their student athletes. Yeah. So creating an organization that's there long term allows for parents to be able to gain ed education, gain information, but also hold accountable. And let's talk about what that even means from an accountability perspective, right? We had conversations and the NCAA has been great at meeting with our parents. Um, we had conversations even about what March Madness would look like because everything ha was handled in Indiana. So think about if you're a parent that lives in Washington state, and your son or daughter plays, let's say somewhere, plays for UCLA. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, I want to make sure that I'm there for my kids' games, but I got to spend the next month in Indiana and the financial impact and all that. So, so as the NCAA makes decisions, as schools make decisions, they should absolutely be, have some level of accountability to parents. And if yeah. we only look at the current parents that are currently there, that wanes over time because of the turnover. But if you have an organization there that re represents parents generally year after year after year, then you can get more long lasting accountability. Yeah. Just like when Gene Smith and, and uh, Urban Meyer advocated for, you know, the, the, in 2014, when the college football playoff became a two-game deal, and if you made the second round, I mean, most every parent you can say you got to, you know, you got to figure in. There's going to be a bowl game, a bowl trip, so you can save up for that. But two straight bowl trips, you know, I mean, that would kill anybody's budget, right? I mean, uh, and uh, I see. Where you're, I mean, that's that's an example of what we're talking about to a certain extent. Hey, last thing uh, with this name, image, and likeness. Do you see a situation like? For example, I'm gonna name a player on Ohio State, Paris Johnson Jr. He gets a he gets some kind of name, image, and likeness deal with Campbell Soup and then his mom, Monica Johnson, uh, you know, like uh, you know, with the bus, you know, Jerome mm -hmm. Bettis. Uh do you see that coming down the line? And not only the the uh the players, but maybe their families could be involved also. I mean, where do you where do you think the line's gonna be drawn? I, I think we'll see that. Um, but I think what I would say and what I would caution everyone is. It's easy to come up with these big ideas of scenarios, um, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah you know, the big scenarios of, of sports deals, like we tra- tra- traditionally know them now, the Gatorades, the Nikes, whatever. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to see a ton of those. They're going to be reserved for the elite of the elite. But what we are going to see are much more social media influencing, um, getting paid to, you know, post Instagram stories or TikTok videos or what have you. And, and that's where we're going to see creativity. And if, if a brand can say, Hey, if I bring this player and a sibling or, and a parent or something along those lines, and it can help penetrate to the market that I want to get to, we're going to see more of it. Right. I mean, that's the bottom line. Brands are only going to get involved in name, image, and likeness and pay student athletes if they feel like they're going to get a return on their investment for their branding and marketing. Yeah. Like you and I talked about seven months ago and I was having, I, and I encourage people to go back and watch that video if you're very interested in this, because I thought that was a great conversation uh, is, is the fact that it's going to be the wild, wild west early on in this deal. And it finally, name image of likeness is finally approved, but it will settle down because finally, yeah. if you're a company, you have to justify, you know, if you're given a, if you're given player a, this amount to be a spokesman or whatever for you, you have to justify where that's helping your bottom line, bottom line. Right. And uh, it's not just a big handout. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it, it's fee for service and you, they are going to make the evaluation. So that's why when the NCAA talks about, you know, wanting, they're going to need to understand fair market value. We're going to know generally what fair market value is, but at the same time, it's all going to be whatever the brands decide they're willing to pay a student athlete. Right. And yeah. the student athlete, again, their metrics for that, but it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I'd also like to promote another podcast, protecting your possibilities produced by Luke Fedlum. Yes. Luke, I- Look, I really, really enjoyed me. I've always enjoyed speaking with you, but I really enjoyed you coming on the Tim May podcast, my man, because, you know, we're going to we're going to get on this again, especially when this thing gets approved, uh, just to kind of get a a lay of the land and uh, and just see where things are going. But thanks again for joining me, my man. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for having me, man. I love coming on, love chatting with you. Um, And I know for a fact we will have plenty to discuss as we move into this summer and this fall. Amen to that. All right. Looking forward to it, buddy. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, big changes come around the corner. Like I said, they looked like they were coming around the corner like a bus about seven or eight months ago, this name, image, and likeness situation. But it's been more like a glacier, you know. But as soon as it gets upon you, you know, it's going to be interesting to see not just how players or student athletes deal with this, but how administrators deal with it, how the NCAA deals with it, you know, uh, what kind of machinery is going to be set up to deal with, what are going to finally be the final parameters, and are you going to let it get to a situation where seven or eight states are going to allow players to benefit from it like this coming fall, but not some other states, you know, and uh, like Luke Fedlam said, there's some legislation being bounced around in the state of Ohio to kind of catch up with the times in that regard, but Changes they are coming. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. I can't think of any organization I would trust less to get this right than the NCAA. So yeah. they're already way behind, as you said, their own glacier pace. Well, uh, it's it's pretty weird that you think of these two organizations with, you know, government, you know, trying to get something through. That's usually what we're talking about with taking forever. Yeah. And they're moving quick, recognizing the issue, getting it through, getting it passed. 
because the the public perception of this uh, has long changed against the NCAA for its model of, of student athlete amateurism. And the fact that it's taking them this long, that they've let it get out of their hands, really, where they don't, you know, they're going to have to just match what, uh, you know, states and maybe eventually, what, depending on what Anthony Gonzalez gets through, you know, at the federal level, you know, they just have to go along with that. And if otherwise they risk losing athletics entirely, um, which I'm sure that nobody wants to ha- to see happen at any level anywhere. So um, it's it's wild, but this is pure NCA bureaucracy stumbling along and bumbling along as it always does. Please don't change. Please don't change. Oh, it changed. That's what <laughs> you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Now it's so we've had it so nice for so long. Oh, yeah. Now we got to deal with this. You know. Uh, you know, like I was talking about with Luke though, the rules. You know, the compliance offices. You know, they're gonna. Their, their workload may uh, increase threefold in this, you know, once the rules are finally set in place. But the flip side of it is, I said, well, at least you don't have to let, necessarily tail every athlete to see where he's going every night. You know, things like that uh, could go by the way. You know, who knows? Like he said, you're still going to have to have, like I pointed out to him, you're still going to have to have rules. You know, you can't just have the wild, wild west. And uh, and I think even parents, even, even players and parents need to understand that you can't just be, uh, you know, a run amok situation, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you, you can afford to probably, I think there's an opportunity for everyone to make more money out of this, including the, you know, the teams themselves. If your yeah. players are more marketable than the, the brand that they play for, the jersey they wear, the stadium they play in also becomes more valuable. I think they get lost in this because they've all made so much money for so long. Um, you know, there'll be more money to pay more compliance directors if that's what you're worried about. But the other point you made is you don't have to monitor every single person that they shake hands with anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, I don't, I don't know the right way for them to, to handle this, but if somebody got paid a hundred dollars to go to roosters on a Monday, well, who is that hurting? Like it doesn't, it doesn't impact amateurism. It doesn't give any school a competitive advantage. Every campus has businesses like I, I just hear this argument all the time about what it means and the talent disparity and how it'll change recruiting. It's not going to at all because newsflash, this has always been going on at every major program for years yeah. and it doesn't impact anything. Dude, how about those, how about those, uh, how about those monies at Roosters though with you guys? If you could have an active player, you know, pay him uh, X amount of money to be there on the panel, you know, what can Ohio State really do to maybe they can frown on it? But can they, you know what I mean? That, that, that we could be really moving into an interesting era. It makes Ohio State more popular if their players are more accessible, yeah. if they're more familiar to the fan base, if you could actually have a chance to see them. I talked about this the other day, um, you know, yeah. with, with Berm and Will. Like, you know, maybe maybe there's an adjustment that we get to make and, and, and a, something that we get to offer them. And, you know, a Monday where – in the summer, not taking away from workouts or class or any of that, it, you know, somebody comes in and they, they jump on the show and they sign autographs that helps Ohio state for their players to be out there. Like sure. there used to be a lot more of those where, you know, it's, the schools would organize Alabama still does very famously for their spring game. And you, you can get everybody on the team. You know, I'm not sure, I, you know, better than I have if, if Ohio state used to have more stuff like that. Oh, I used to. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I mean, spring like, game, for example, is one of those opportunities. The, uh, the picture day was one of those opportunities, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah the chance, the chance to do that and get to know these guys who, as we've said on your show almost every week are really, really good dudes. 
uh, and to shake hands and, and meet the kids and, you know, sign their shirt, like that helps you. That establishes that brand loyalty and gives them a favorite player to watch every Saturday and, and sticks with them all throughout college. And, and for like, that's, that helps your program. Yeah. And uh, the people that help you do that should, in my opinion, get, a, get paid for that. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, and, and, and I agree with this too, though, abuse brings rules, you know, I mean, it does. And, you know, there were probably some abuses along the way, but I've, Ohio State football players have never been more, more cloistered, if in fact that's the correct term, and since I've been covering them, than they are now. I mean, you know, and it's uh, uh, I, th- I just think that's interesting. Just when you this is all moving toward a big, you know, opening, a big waterfall. You know, the 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 river has gotten more narrow. You know, <laughs> and all of a sudden now, how they're going to deal with that waterfall is going to be interesting to me. Well, I think that they've. Uh, Ohio State in particular, because that's the team that we know, and the and right, you know, they've become really successful and focused on establishing that individual brands for the players. But they that all that is all basically directed at social media, which is great, and that's a huge market. But if you don't actually ever take that into in person interaction, and let's take COVID out of this equation, and it's not like they could have done this over the last fourteen months, but they weren't doing that previously. Events where your players are out there, uh, where they're interacting like humans, uh, when it's not just yeah. a brand, yeah. that, that winds up. You have to have that element included as well. And as you said, when you're talking about that narrowing, that includes media appearances, that includes autograph sessions, all these other things. And um, there's a part of that that Ohio State, you know, and every other school, you know, they're not going to be able to nail down every minute of every day for these guys moving forward. And it goes back to what we talked about at the start of the podcast with NFL players. You're also developing them to handle that when they move on to the next level, you're giving them the life experience that they need uh, and will be part of their job at the NFL level. So every part of it works in favor of a program like Ohio state. Is it ideal for um, Wyoming to be competing directly with Ohio state in terms of this market? No, but they're already not playing on a, on a level competitive playing field. That shouldn't even enter in the conversation and, and take, you know, whether that's Iowa or Wyoming or, you know, whatever level, like it's never going to be the same. It's already not. So you should, you have to do the things um, that prepare your player and program the best that you can. Agree. Uh, and we'll see how that goes. I just, it's going to be an interesting time. Let me put it that way. Speaking yeah. of, speaking of being able to cash in, how about that segue? Um, <laughs> You know, we've got what? Are you, what? Fifteen, seventeen? How many? How many? How many Buckeyes are actually eligible for this draft? I, I was doing a list the other night, and I and I, you know, I always forget somebody, but it's a it's a it's more than a dozen. It's a it's more than a baker's dozen, and uh, and several of these guys are going to realize their life dream of moving on, playing in the NFL. And yeah, that is the end game for most of the guys at Ohio State recruits. You know, as the old saying goes, that's not brag, that's just fact. But yeah. uh, you know, let's just hit on a couple of real quick, let's little quick snippets. Where do you think Justin Fields finally is going to go? You saw the report over the weekend that San Francisco seems to be looking at two quarterbacks who aren't Justin Fields, you know, and uh, uh, right on down the line. So where's – we, 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 you got the idea that who Jacksonville is going to take Trevor Lawrence, who the New York Jets are going to take, the kid from BYU. Uh, mm-hmm. San Francisco looking at uh, Trey Lance and who's he, Mac Jones. Uh, 
it's just hard to me, me to believe they're going to take Mac Jones over Justin Fields. Uh, uh, even Trey Lance over Justin Fields, that makes no sense. But what 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 are you hearing? What's your take on that? Where do you think he finally slides? I'll believe that the 49ers aren't taking Justin Fields if they turn in a card with somebody else's name on Thursday yeah, night. me too. I just – the part that doesn't make any sense, Tim, is that the 49ers already traded up. They didn't wait until Thursday night to do it. So – I don't. I have a hard time believing that there's a scenario where they traded up to three, but didn't know which of those guys that they wanted. Amen. So if you're listening to this, and 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 I guess you know we'll find out for sure on Thursday. All this speculation, all the unfair, um, you know, information that's come out. I think to Justin Fields over the last couple of weeks, that'll all be over. Um, there's just no way that San Francisco gave up what they gave up to go to number three, and they don't know who that person is. But how uh, crazy is it? But let me ask you. But, you know, we, we all know Urban Meyer was drafting Trevor Lawrence before he ever even got the job at Jacksonville. Yeah, right. uh, number two, it's, it seems clear that uh, that the New York Jets are, 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 in, are in tight with Zach Wilson uh, uh-huh. for whatever reason. I mean, I think he's really good, but do I think he's on Justin Fields' level? No, I do not. Uh, but what good would it do for there, be, for there to be now disinformation being disseminated about who the – 49ers might take, and supposedly that's coming from inside, you know, 49erville. Who knows what that is? Uh, you know, when in fact they're the third pick. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I don't. I don't know the benefit to that. I can't think of any, and I, I've struggled all along during this disinformation campaign about Justin Fields to understand it. You and I have talked about that several times over the last, uh, you know, couple months about the way that this has played out. I mean, if he doesn't go at three, I think that suddenly the number four pick becomes insanely valuable. And if, if Atlanta keeps that, then they yep. have the quarterback of their future that can sit behind Matt Ryan for a year. And that's that's about the ideal scenario for them. Um, you know, I don't think that he goes past, you know, if the Bengals aren't going to take Justin Fields, obviously, with Joe Burrow there. Um, but suddenly they would have options, uh, people lining up to trade. And maybe that helps the Bengals. I, I was – having that conversation with a buddy on Monday. What do you do with, with, with number five? It might be the most valuable number five pick in NFL history. I know yeah. if I'm going to go. Here's the, here's the thing, though. You know, the, other, the other thing about letting that float, if in fact you let that float about, uh, you know, Trey Lance uh, or Mac Jones is, that means, you know, you could get those guys later. So right. maybe that maybe San Francisco's got the uh, chum out in the water trying to get another trade going, you know what I mean, and uh, get another pick or two. And uh, move down a couple of spots, and boom, they 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 they're doing what they're doing. Who knows what's going on, right? Right. Yeah. So we're- I think he's I, to answer your question after that very long, uh, you know, answer. I I still think he's going to San Francisco. I do too. I do too. I don't too. believe the report. Now, real quick, uh, you and I, at least I've refrained from even mentioning the word, uh, the thing that came out last week about the situation he's dealt with his whole life uh, yeah. that he's gotten treatment for. That, you know, in my opinion, there are things that are part of the public purview that to me was not part of it. You know, you and I are both we're both aware of a, of his situation in that regard. But it's, he's handled it his whole life. I'm talking about the the, uh, the chronic situation he was dealing with or had, deals with. And why did that have to become even if you found out about it uh, without getting his permission uh, for one of another term? To talk about it, why did that have to become uh, part of the public domain? Uh, and you know, and some people have now jumped ahead and said, "Well, now that it's out, he can now become a spokesman for this situation." I'm just going, boy. Not only have you outed 
this situation, but now you're trying to turn it into like, turning it into like making him a hero because of it. When in fact, obviously I don't think he necessarily wanted it out there. I'm talking about a, a medical kind of chronic, uh, uh, he was born with situation. Yeah. Uh, just, what's your take on how that all came out? thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And another thing that was grossly unfair and, uh, on a, you know, crosses also some, some privacy lines. Uh, yeah. I'd, I'd question the legality of it, of the way that it was leaked. Um, and then, then the way that the next day you spin it, uh, as an opportunity for him, if he'd wanted to be a spokesman for it, he yeah. already could have done so. If he wanted people to publicly be aware of that situation, he had numerous opportunities, as you said, you and I, and obviously Ohio State's entire program, coaching staff, medical people had to be aware of that um, when he arrived. Um, so it's not like this is something that he had hidden until he got to the NFL draft. Um, so it's absolutely crazy to me. He could have, you know, if, if it was important to him to speak out about it or address what he was going through uh, or how he manages it, he's had plenty of opportunities being the quarterback of Ohio State to do so could do it at the drop of the hat anytime he wanted to. Yep. So I, I thought it was <laughs> way, way out of bounds. I was extremely disappointed by those people that we share a profession with, that they would think that that's okay um, or meaningful in any way when it's not ever impacted his game, uh, his ability to be part of a program. Um, if it had been, if it had um, been an issue for him that he couldn't manage it or play, or practice throughout his career, then that would have, then that's a different story. Um, but there's nothing to, people go through everything in their day-to-day uh, -day life to get through, a, uh, you know, whatever. Talking about, talking about private medical information at this level, when it didn't impact him positively or negatively, you know, really any way at all, I just yeah. thought it was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, a, a busted knee, a busted shoulder, uh, a concussion, things like that. Those are part of the public purview, in my opinion, because they they do affect uh, they do affect the player uh, availability, things like that. But there's never been any sign that this has affected his availability in any form or fashion. And uh, I just, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't care what people think of me. The fact that I pretty much knew about it, just like you did. But you know, that's unless he volunteers it, it's it's crazy. You know, we all can see when you hurt your knee you know, things like that. But, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm kind of taken aback by it, to be honest with you. And I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that probably Ryan Day was furious, uh, that, that, that got out. Cause there's been so much other negative stuff about, uh, Justin Fields has gotten out. that was not true. You know what I mean? And this, this has just been, I'm telling you, I've been around it for a long time. This has been the craziest buildup for a single player that I can ever remember before the draft. I'm talking about at least from Ohio state, uh, I think you probably agree, don't you? Yeah, I just – just when I think that it can't get uh, weirder or worse or dumber, they find another way, uh, these NFL, you know, draft uh, experts and, and uh, all their sources. Like, the other part – I don't – I just – I can't wrap my mind around why it is happening to him specifically. There's just no, no justification for it. And he doesn't need or want – our sympathy, but I have felt uh, not only did I was I disappointed in the way that it was covered by those people last week, but it's just I feel bad for Justin Fields that he has to deal with this. Yeah, and he he said, and Ryan Dave said, 
doesn't matter. He knows who he is, what he's capable of doing. He'll go play for anybody. And he, you know, that's the Justin Fields that we know and that competitive spirit and mindset that he has. But that doesn't mean that you still don't feel some, uh, you know, sympathy, uh, empathy for somebody going through what he, he shouldn't have to answer these questions. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, the most ridiculous part. All right, let's move on real quick because, you know, I'm running out of time. I'm, I'm trying to keep these podcasts under an hour. It's really difficult for me and and you, uh, especially when you and I are together. You know, it's kind of, you know, yeah, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I'm taking what's going to be an eight-hour flight and turning it into a 33-hour flight, but I digress. Uh, Wyatt Davis, you know. I understand guards. I had Albert Burr on my podcast last week, special podcast, talking about why guards aren't taken in the first round, you know, because there's a lot of them out there. Uh, tackles are much more valuable. But when you got a guy like Wyatt Davis, who could be on your team for 10 to 12 years, probably minimum, playing at a, probably playing at an all an all pro level many of those years, how is he not a how is he not somebody's first round draft pick? Pretty surprised that he's not because he could have, uh, you know left a year ago and still potentially been in a first or second round draft pick. Uh, if he had opted out, I think that that conversation would have been uh, stayed the same. And he played at the end of last year, uh, you know, really on one leg, gritting through it to try and, you know, take Ohio State through the college football playoff. That should have only enhanced his value. It shouldn't have hurt it. Yeah. Uh, although I understand why teams, you know, would, would ask about injuries and that's millions of dollars at stake. But if he doesn't go in the first round, um, uh, boy, I would be sprinting up to the podium. Uh, if I'm Urban Meyer, I, I assume they have the 33rd pick. I, I guess I didn't double check that. I don't know if they traded away or not, but you know, I think that that that'll be another Urban Meyer pick that is known before, before they go anywhere. Um, just, he's one of the best blockers I've ever seen. And, yeah. um, you want him on your team, you know, you're going to have him, you know, for 10 years you're talking about, the injury concern. Well, the fact that he played through that tells you he understands that availability uh, is still very important to his team and that he will be around to give whatever he can. I, I'd say the same thing for Josh Myers. I, I don't think either of those guys are getting enough attention going into Thursday, Friday. You know, if they go doing a Saturday, now that would be a really insane. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, and, and then flip flip of that, you know, Pete Warner's getting the buzz he deserves. You know, I mean, uh, like we had a story at LettermanRoad.com earlier this week, uh, basically about saying there's some there's some rumors or what do you want to call it, the whispers going around. He could end, he could end up in the first round. And the thing about it, there's another guy. That guy's going to be barring injury. That guy's going to be in the league for a long time because he can do a lot of things for you uh, from a linebacker situation. And and in this modern game, tackling in space is at a premium. Uh, He's about as good at it as, as anybody on that football team last year at Ohio State, and uh, that that seems justified, doesn't it? It, it does to me, and uh, it, it's kind of funny how this works. There, there were a lot yeah. of a lot of people that uh, made their opinions and in, were entrenched in them based on what happened, you know, in 2018 for Pete Warner. Um, the longer that the NFL scouts and talent evaluators are looking at him, you know, they're not. They're not picking at those flaws or what happened three years ago. They're seeing the last two seasons of production and somebody maturing physically, mentally, everything the way he did into an impact player and saying, whoa, uh, this guy can play any position at linebacker. He's dropped into coverage, um, you know, physical measurability off the charts on, on pro day workouts. And it doesn't surprise me because 
I watched him develop from that year. It, sometimes th- that happens, you, you know, form an opinion. You don't want to change your mind. Um, I, I tried not to hold what happened with that 2018 unit against uh, anybody because I thought that a lot of it was due to individual position coaching. And Al Washington and Pete Warner, they went off like this. Yeah. It was easy to see the improvement. I, you know, I would want him on my team. He's a he's a fantastic linebacker. Josh Myers, we already talked about him. I think I think he's a I think he's going to be taken in the second day some somewhere. I do believe that. Uh, you know, he's gotten over his foot foot situation, or you know, he's getting over his foot situation. He finally revealed, you know, <laughs> the big reveal. And I talk about guys playing tough down yeah. the down the down the down the stretch. Uh, a guy that's intriguing to me uh, is Justin Hilliard because I I'm telling you what, man, if you can divorce yourself from what happened to Justin Hilliard at Ohio State the first three and a half years he or so he was there and look at video from last year and maybe the year before. I mean, he is finally playing, like I said on Channel 10 the other night on Waldorf Sports, he's playing like that five-star guy you thought was, you know, when he when he signed with Ohio State six, you know, almost half a century ago, six years ago, seven years ago. Um, <laughs> I think you agree with me, right? Somebody could take a flyer. See, this is what I tell everybody. The thing about the draft is – it's not you line up one through 500 in the order of how good you are, talented you are. It's it's convincing one or two teams that you're good enough to play for them. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not about convincing 32. And if Justin Heard's people and he have done their work, he could. I think he could go in the third round. But he, I wouldn't be surprised to see him slide to the uh, to the third to the third day either. But uh, is he one of those outliers for you? Yeah, and you know that's a a feel good story that could feel even better for him. If he gets the reward that, you know, I think is coming for him this weekend and maybe Saturday, you know, think about the number of injuries that he's been through. That's always, you know, a red flag for teams, but he's, he's going on two years of pretty good luck with that now. And as you said, playing at a really high level, just put on, put on the tape of those postseason games, especially the big 10 title game and the sugar bowl. I mean, that was that was a five-star linebacker yeah, uh, uh, and and somebody that Ohio State felt like needed to be on the field. And, and I think an NFL organization, one of them will recognize that. I know we we overuse maybe this cliche, but if anybody could find that value that's being overlooked and knows that you could put that guy on special teams and then use in a bunch of different roles, yeah, you know, Belichick is always in Columbus for pro day for a reason. He's looking for guys like Justin Hilliard. The NFL loves situational players now. You know, you don't just throw 11 out there like the old days and they play all day, you know, back when teams only had 33 players on their roster. <laughs> I mean, you can afford – and the other guy in that mix, and he's another linebacker, I'm, you know, is Baron Browning. Somebody's going to take a flyer on him. You can't afford not to. You know, when a guy – for example, standing broad jump 10 feet 10 inches, are you – that's nuts. Are you yeah. kidding me? It's just a – just a tip of the iceberg, and we all saw him play with much more accountability and confidence last year. I think, you know, and I think anybody who's drafting for the future sees a big upside with him. Don't you agree? Yeah, I wonder what would have happened for um, a guy like Baron Browning or even Pete Warner to to a little bit lesser extent uh, yeah. based on his numbers. If there had been a traditional combine where all of the all of the national media, all of these draft experts, all the networks were in one place, which even though Ohio State's pro day was on TV and they, you know, some results eventually came out, it's not the same as the way they turn that into an actual event. And if you win the broad jump at the combine, 
you've seen this every year with somebody who rises up just based solely on the way they test. Yeah. I, I've, you know, I wonder what that would have done for Baron Browning if he got that attention in late February. And then there's the buzz going into the pro day and, you know, suddenly, you know, a lot more excitement about the positions he can play and a lot more, you know, stories and putting that out for all 32 teams to think about, all right, well, what do you do with somebody like Baron Browning? He's somebody that I think was missed out on that part. He still tested, as you said, extremely well at Ohio State's pro day, but it just doesn't come with the same, you know, you know, uh, stock changing ability that the combine tends to. And yeah, you're right. I mean, someone is absolutely going to check those numbers, check what they saw from their interviews and then look at the tape. And again, the improvement of somebody slowly throughout his career and who didn't get to play one spot, which would have helped him. Yeah. Uh, and they'll, they'll like, they'll fall in love with Baron Browning. I'm pretty confident of that. Yeah. He turned into a playmaker last year. He was a little bit of a playmaker until he got hurt, you know, the year before. Absolutely. I mean, yep. a lot of these guys are playing with maladies, you know, we don't even know about, uh, uh, or, or it's not delineated how, how serious they are and stuff sometimes. But, uh, you know, the other guy, I mean, we could, we could go through everybody. <clears throat> I think Luke Farrell's going to end up on a team no matter what, you know, yep. tight end, et cetera. But of course the most, probably the most intriguing guy for me in this draft is Sean Wade. Have teams come to grips now with what he's all about, what he can offer them. With teams playing playing a lot of uh, five, sometimes uh, dime packages, but nickel, sometimes dime packages in all kinds of different ways, needing that guy who can lock, can lock down the receivers in that slot, slot corner, which seems to be more of his ballywick and possibly even playing a, a safety cover kind of guy like we talk about about Ohio State now in their defense. I think his value is now – has now reascended, if in fact that's the term, where, where he goes in the – I don't see anybody going for him in the first round from everything I'm hearing, but that's – you know, who knows? You know, like I said, it only takes one team to make you a first-round draft pick. But second or third round, I think, still seems a place where he could fall. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's – I mean, it's not going to be at the same level that it was a year ago if he'd come out. I think yeah. everyone can recognize that. And when you're talking about – getting a clear picture of where he stands. I think that's because NFL teams now know that he's probably not going to be an outside cornerback for them. There's nothing wrong with that. You can make a long uh, lasting career out of playing some of that safety or slot corner role, depending on what teams want, how they view it. Um, I, he was a, a game changing defensive weapon for Ohio state two years ago in that slot role because of that versatility that you talked about. He's willing to come tackle some of those blitzes that, with his quickness coming yeah. off the corner. I mean, those were – let's. we don't even need to talk about what happened in the Fiesta Bowl yet again. But, um, you know, though he can he can wreck teams because he can cover and he can get after it and help you in the run. Uh, I don't know, because he's not established as that outside corner, what that means for his value in terms of a draft round, draft selection. But somebody, I think, will be happy to try and work him into that third corner role uh, moving forward, probably in the third round, but we'll see. I'm interested in Trey Sermon. I think he's got that wiggle. I'm always talking about the wiggle. I'm writing a story about that uh, for later this week uh, about Trevion Henderson. Trey Sermon finally got his act together uh, late in the year last year and showed what he's all about, in my opinion. He's fresh <laughs> from a taking hit standpoint. I think some team's going to reach for him. I'm not sure what round it's going to be. I wouldn't even hazard to guess. It's middle rounds. <laughs> I, I think you agree. And then Jonathan Cooper is a real wild card. You know, we'll just rack it up. He and he and Tommy Togi, uh, you know, they all, all three of those guys, but especially uh, Cooper and Togi are interesting because Cooper doesn't necessarily fit exactly what you want at any position, 
but he could be versatile. Togi seems a little small for that A-gap stuffer, as I call him, yet he's proven to have toughness. His strength is unquestioned. Uh, those are going to be real – uh, real interesting guys to watch in this draft. You agree? Yeah, and, and Coop uh, is expecting to be taken as a linebacker. Um, that's the way he's been working out, the way he's been training, the way he's been working on his body. Um, you know, that, it, it's, it, that's interesting because he hasn't done it in so long. Certainly didn't do it yeah. for Ohio State. Been training with Larry Johnson for a long time. I think you'd want to uh, take the Johnson pedigree and someone who's, who's proven he could get after the passer for Ohio State and keep him there. But, you know, we hear this every year at this time. All these guys want is a shot, and they will do anything to earn it. In fact, that Jonathan Cooper is willing to maybe stand up and play some 3-4 outside linebacker, or you could still, you know, use those, those pass rush moves at times. That tells you what, what kind of guy he is and how hard he's willing to work for it. Sure. As, you, as you said, both of those guys are proven, productive players for one of the most you know, successful programs in the country. They're going to get their. They're going to get drafted. They're going to get a shot, and that's really ultimately what this whole week is about. Yeah, you think the legend of Tommy Togi would have grown immensely if he'd come back for another year at Ohio State? I mean, yeah. you know, it's funny because eventually these guys, most of these guys, move back to town one form or fashion. You know, because <laughs> this is really, this is really where you really put down roots. You know, for a lot of these uh, people. But boy, I'd like to see him play one more year. Just, just one more year of maturity. One more year. Uh, of leading the way, so to speak, but uh, just just another year of Tommy Togi with experience under his belt. I'm going to have to go back and check because I don't remember who said it, but whoever accidentally said Tommy Togi is already the strongest player on the team when he was a true freshman changed the entire legend uh, legacy of his career, the, the trajectory of his career, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Like that one one quote, which may or may not have been you know, ac accurate or uh, tested in the weight room changed everything about the, what people expected from Tommy Togiai, the way we talked about him, almost every story that was ever written about him. Yeah. And then if you had one more year and, you know, 40 bench press, that about sums it up too. But yeah, uh, he could have the production next year. It would have been scary to see he and Haskell Garrett both uh, together for one more season. Oh, yeah. They would have been, like I said, man, nothing replaces – a, a big time a gap stuffer like a guy like that. I mean, uh, it's it's really crazy. And Ohio State's looking to replace him this year. Awesome, Ward. Uh, appreciate you, man. We're going to come back on next week. We're going to talk more about Ohio State football than we are the NFL. If that's <laughs> all right with you, because I think most of our listeners care more about that anyway. You know, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, players that leave here aren't soon forgotten, but uh, you know, the most of the most of the people who follow Ohio State football want to know what's coming next for them. You know, and that's understandable, isn't it? It is. We yeah. learned that. But anyway, hey, until next week, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim May for Awesome Ward. We'll see you then.